This is Guns and Butter. FBI was brought in to cover this up, and um, they did everything they could to intimidate the victims and actually some perpetrators, at least one of the major perpetrators, a multimillionaire in Omaha, uh, was thinking about turning state's evidence, and the FBI threatened to kill him if he did. So the FBI was the primary entity for covering it up and uh, between the FBI, between the FBI's thuggery and the judiciary's uh, corruption, they were able to cover this network up, King's Pedophile Network. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Nick Bryant. Today's show, from Franklin to Epstein, the cover-up continues. Nick Bryant is an author and an investigative journalist. He is the author of The Franklin Scandal a story of power brokers, child abuse, and betrayal. He spent seven years personally investigating a coast-to-coast child trafficking network in Nebraska, Washington, D.C., and other locales. He is also co-author with Henry W. Vinson of Confessions of a D.C. Madam, The Politics of Sex, Lies, and Blackmail, about a gay escort service that covers the Washington, D.C. half of the nationwide pedophile trafficking network that was centered in Omaha, Nebraska. He has also investigated the Jeffrey Epstein network. He obtained and published Epstein's Little Black Book on the Internet in 2015. He has been a child advocate for 30 years. Nick Bryant, welcome. Well, I'm glad to be on your show, Bonnie. From your book, The Franklin Scandal, A Story of Power Brokers, Child Abuse, and Betrayal, I understand that you investigated the Nebraska Franklin Community Federal Credit Union scandal for seven long years. In the prologue of your book, your initial inquiries into the, quote, finders sparked what would become a full investigation into child abuse. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of the finders and how the CIA of all institutions is involved? The finders were a cult, or are a cult. Their epicenter is in Washington, D.C. And two adult male members of the finders were in a Tallahassee park with six children whose ages ranged from two to six. And these children looked severely abused, severely abused. And a concerned citizen called the Tallahassee Police Department. And then the Tallahassee Police Department showed up and they immediately, they arrested the two finders and then they uh, put the six kids in child protective services. And the two finders were charged with multiple counts of child trafficking and child abuse. And at the same time, the U.S. Customs and also the Washington, D.C. Police Department executed search warrants on the finders' warehouses where they found uh, like a cache of child pornography. And it just it was it was very bizarre. But then the CIA stepped in and they told the U.S. Customs Service 
that the investigation into the finders had been a CIA internal matter. So ultimately, these two finders that were with all the kids um, were let out of jail. I mean, that was it. And then the kids were repatriated to the cult. And I read that document. I read that document 18 years ago. And I kind of thought I knew how the world worked. But when I saw the CIA basically liberating child molesters in the United States, or alleged child molesters in the United States, I, 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 was, I was stunned. First of all, the CIA doesn't have a mandate to operate domestically. It has all these years, but it, it's, that's against the law. But what were they doing with this group? I mean, I, I was just stunned. And, um, and at that point, I became willing to entertain ideas that I hadn't previously entertained about child trafficking. Could you give us an overview of the Nebraska Franklin Community Federal Credit Union? I understand that Franklin was set up to provide loans to the underserved black community. On November 4, 1988, the Omaha-based uh, Franklin uh, Federal Credit Union was shut down by the FBI, the IRS, and the National Credit Union Administration. 30 to $40 million had vanished. Did you ever determine where this money went? No. Um, and what you're talking about, the Franklin Credit Union was basically a front for this nationwide pedophile network that I wrote about in the Franklin scandal. And that credit union should have had about $2 million in it, but it had $40 million. Uh, King, Lawrence E. King, one of the pedophilic pimps in that network, had actually built uh, like $40 million or embezzled $40 million from the, uh, the approximately $40 million from the credit union. And he was able to stave, he had the political juice to stave off audits um, by the National Association for Credit Unions. They all knew what he was up to, but they were basically... Uh, as, as one employee of the Franklin Credit Union said to me, when, when that uh, overseeing entity would show up at the credit union, King would say, get me Washington. And then all of a sudden, after he talked to Washington, then the uh, auditors would leave. So he had the juice to stave off audits for about four years. Who is Larry King of Omaha, Nebraska? You describe him as, quote, the primary pimp of the nationwide pedophile ring, unquote. Larry King sang the national anthem at the 1984 GOP convention in Dallas and rented the South Fork Ranch of the TV show Dallas fame for 600 convention goers. He was also very involved in the 1988 GOP national convention in New Orleans and through his support behind George H. W. Bush for president. Describe this fast-rising African-American star in the Republican Party. Well, Lawrence E. King was, was a product of uh, Omaha, Nebraska. His father was a, was a blue-collar laborer, and he grew up in 
essentially a blue collar home, a blue collar neighborhood. And he ultimately uh, enlisted in the service and he was stationed in Thailand with, uh, I guess what I've heard is with some top security clearances. And then he came back after his time in Thailand, he came back to Omaha, Nebraska and started this credit union. And I think it was at this time, and we're talking at some point in the 70s, uh, that he started the pedophilic network that I, that I wrote about. I mean, it got much bigger and much uglier. But yes, I think it was around that time when he probably started the uh, pedophile network. Who were foster parents Jarrett and Barbara Webb? What did they have to do with the Franklin Credit Union in Omaha, and why was an investigation into this couple thwarted? Well, the Webbs, uh, Barbara Webb was a cousin of Larry Kang's, and they had a very unorthodox arrangement workout. They had like uh, eight kids, foster kids, in their home, and foster adopted, and they got subsidies for every one of them. And the abuse in that home is spine chilling. I mean, it's or blood curling. It's just um, the abuse in that home was uh, the kids were beaten. Uh, they were starved. Uh, they were molested. Um, and then the oldest kid, who was 14 at that time, was pandered out to Lawrence E. King's network. And she attended pedophilic parties in Chicago and also in New York. And she was the first kid to come forward. But social services had all this documentation on the webs, the beatings and, 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 and everything. And uh, it took them years to act on, on this. And actually, uh, according to a, an investigator, he uh, talked to a social worker and that social worker knew something was wrong in that household. And according to that social worker, when she started to look into that household, the FBI paid a very surly visit to her and told her to back off. So then the FBI was involved in the investigation into this couple. No, uh, the FBI was not supposed to be involved in that investigation, but the FBI was involved in the Omaha network because they were the ones that covered this up. They were the ones that threatened people. They were the ones that threatened victims. Um, yeah, the FBI uh, in Omaha is filled with some nasty pieces of work, or was, and they played an instrumental role in covering up this pedophile network. Now, was Barbara Webb and her husband, were they on the board of directors of the Franklin Credit Union? Uh, Jared Webb was. I don't think Barbara was. Alicia Owen and Paul Bonacci are both child abuse victims associated with the Franklin case. Did you meet with both of them, and could you describe them? Well, I've, I've, uh, I spent a lot of time with both Paul and Alicia. And I should put in some background with this. Uh, Paul and Alicia, there, there were a number of kids that were abused. And uh, six of them came forward despite FBI threats. And ultimately, Paul and Alicia refused to recant their abuse. They said, we were abused by these people and we're not going to recant it regardless of what the consequences are. 
So uh, both were charged with perjury. This grand jury that covered up uh, the network charged Paul and Alicia with perjury. Alicia was looking at like 200 years um, because on her, uh, I think it was eight counts of perjury. And she still refused to knuckle under. And ultimately there was a kangaroo court where she was found guilty and sentenced to, and we're talking a kid that was indicted when she was 21 years old. Um, and she was sentenced between nine and 15 years in prison and she was put in solitary for two years. They really wanted to punish her for refusing to recant. I should say the judiciary and law enforcement really wanted to punish her for because she refused to recant her abuse, her accounts of her abuse. Well, what ultimately happened to Alicia Owen in her dealings with authorities, the police, FBI, the grand jury, etc.? How was she treated? She was treated about as harshly as someone can be treated. Uh, like I said, uh, when she was 21, she was indicted on those uh, eight counts of perjury, and she was sentenced a kid, you know, I mean, sentenced between nine and 15 years in prison for perjury, put in solitary confinement for two years. That's not really treating uh, her that well. And her brother died under, her younger brother died under very mysterious circumstances also. So Alicia was... In, in the case of Alicia, I think that she was made an example. And the example said to all those kids, because there were a lot of kids that were abused and destroyed by this trafficking network. But the message was, if you come forward and don't recant, this is what's going to happen to you. And um, yeah. And then the Franklin scandal, I talk about other injustices that are perpetrated against Alicia by the judiciary, but they're nuanced, and the, I think that your listeners would have to read the book to really understand them. And uh, just to follow up on that, how many years in prison did she actually serve? She served, I mean, she was a model prisoner, and actually the warden of that prison that she was in believed her absolutely, uh, that she had been part of that network. Um, she ultimately did four and a half years for, for that. So just to clarify, Alicia Owen was a victim of yes. child abuse and trafficking, and she ended up going to prison for it. Well, with a grand jury, let me kind of explain a grand jury, because grand juries are pretty integral in this, uh, in the Franklin tale and also in the Epstein tale. Um, with a grand jury, they're notoriously easy to hijack. A special prosecutor is appointed to be the grand jury uh, prosecutor, and he and, and then grand jurors are just regular citizens that have been called to jury duty that have been funneled into a uh, grand jury. So a grand jury, it sounds like very authoritative, like the gods of Mount Olympus have, have sent down a uh, decree, but actually... Uh, a grand jury is basically just citizens who've shown up for jury duty and then, and then they've been followed. Now, the special prosecutor of a grand jury, he presents evidence to the grand jurors. And really, only the evidence that he presents to the grand jurors are, are what the grand jurors act upon. And in this case, 
I've, I've managed to uh, acquire the sealed testimony and documents for that grand jury. And in this case, it was very obvious that the grand jurors were given information to exonerate the perpetrators and find the children, the victims who had been molested, to find them guilty of perjury. That grand jury was a travesty. And there were two other grand juries. This network was very, very big. And um, it required, to cover the whole thing up, required three grand juries, two in Nebraska and one in Washington, D.C. I'm speaking with author and investigative journalist Nick Bryant. Today's show, From Franklin to Epstein, the cover-up continues. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What was the Franklin Committee of the Nebraska Legislature? What happened there was social services was aware of King's interstate trafficking network. And they had gone to law enforcement, uh, both state and federal law enforcement, and told them about Lawrence King trafficking children. That, they, that kids had come forward and, and, and discussed uh, King trafficking them. Ultimately, what happened there was nothing. The state uh, law enforcement and judiciary and then the federal law enforcement, they did absolutely nothing. They said they did something, but they did absolutely nothing. And ultimately, when King went down for embezzling $40 million from the credit union, um, uh, the Nebraska Senate formed a Franklin committee, a, a Senate subcommittee, to look into the financial crimes of Lawrence King. But after they'd formed, the social service uh, representatives came to them and said, King ripping off $40 million is only part of the problem. He was uh, operating a, uh, a child trafficking network. And then at that point, the Franklin committee subcommittee um, started to investigate not only King's financial crimes, but his crimes against children. The state legislature's Franklin committee hired private investigator Gary Caradori to investigate Franklin. What did he come up with? Could you describe his investigation? And then what happened to him? Well, Gary Kiridori was an amazing investigator. He was a highly decorated Nebraska State Patrol officer, and he started his own um, uh, security firm. It was about 100 employees. And he was an amazing investigator, an amazing investigator. And his specialty was finding uh, kids that had been kidnapped and um, forced into prostitution. And... He ultimately went to work and he collected an unbelievable amount of information about Lawrence E. King's trafficking network. And he, well, let me back up a little bit. So he like found listed 60 victims. He had a list of 60 victims and, 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 and just, and then various people that were involved in, in, in the network both the, uh, the rich people, uh, the affluent power broker types, and uh, people that knew about the network, and also 60 victims. So 
and then he had all kinds of, I mean, he had uh, passenger manifests because King would fly these kids around uh, the country regularly, frequently. And he found like passenger manifests. And I, w I acquired all his documentation because of the, because I was able to get the sealed grand jury exhibits. And his list of victims, of approximately 60 victims, that's what I used to find these find these victims, which was very difficult because these kids, a lot of these kids, or I should say the vast majority of them, grew up in very dysfunctional families. And they were put into like Boys Town or foster care or detention. And, and then King was able to prey upon them and, and incorporate them in his network. And, and if the kids performed well, they'd be turned on to drugs. So ultimately, it's, it's almost like a perfect system um, because the network molested these kids repeatedly, turned them on to drugs, and then when they reached a point where they were no longer marketable, uh, you know, they were expunged. And these kids, these victims, went on to be drug addicts and commit crimes, and, and a number of them had been in prison. And unfortunately they compromised their own integrity. Now, getting back to Gary Caridori, he was an amazing investigator, and he was about to break this thing wide open. I mean, the FBI was doing its best to shut him down. Uh, the FBI had tapped his phones and um, was following him, intimidated him, intimidated his employees. But he was about to break it open. He went to Chicago. He was a pilot. He went to Chicago and there was a number of photographers that worked for this network, and one was Rusty Nelson. And uh, he took blackmail pictures for Lawrence King. And Gary Caridori met Rusty in Chicago. And according to five sources, Rusty gave him pictures of who the uh, power broker perps were and also of who the kids were. And Caridora was flying back from Chicago to uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, and then his plane disintegrated. It just blew up in midair. So, and, and Caridora was killed. And that evidence that he had acquired, those pictures, were never found. Well, now, according to your book, Gary Caridori's investigation was actually in the process of being shut down and they were going after him and accusing him of falsifying evidence, etc., turning him into the accused, so they turned the tables on him. And I understand from reading your book that his last chance to vindicate himself was to get these pictures from Rusty Nelson. Isn't that right? Yes. Yeah, that's what happened in Chicago. And also, his young son was with him when the plane was uh, taken down, right? Yes, he was killed too. No, it's very, very shocking. There is a number of very mysterious deaths associated with this story. And it's just... It, it, it's heartbreaking. Like every chapter, there's uh, two or three mysterious deaths. And um, that's because this network pandered these kids to very, very powerful people. 
in Washington, D.C., and a CIS at, uh, named Craig Spence. He had a house. He and King worked together with this pedophile network. Spence had a house that was worried for audiovisual blackmail, much like we see with Epstein, uh, accounts of Epstein. Spence entertained everybody at his house. I mean, he, he entertained a who's who of the Washington elite, the media elite, and and he'd also compromise people in this house. So it was imperative that this network, the elucidation of this network stopped in Omaha because if it hadn't stopped in Omaha, the dominoes would have fallen all the way to Washington, D.C. That's why the Department of Justice, the FBI, and in Washington, D.C., you had the Secret Service covering this up. You investigated Boys Town and Girls Club in Omaha, Nebraska, and met with several former residents of Boys Town. What did you discover? Well, Lawrence E. King had been plundering Boys Town for uh, underage prostitutes. Well, you met with uh, some of these former residents of Boys Town. What were they like? Well, they're troubled. I mean, like I said earlier, I mean, they, they came from very difficult backgrounds. A lot of them had been in foster care as young children and molested, and then eventually made their way to Boys Town where they were molested, and then uh, ultimately turned out to drugs. So most of the Boys Town kids that I interviewed, or former Boys Town kids that I interviewed, had, had been in prison um, because of their drug addiction and other problems that they had. So Boys Town skated on this, and um, uh, Boys Town is not the uh, utopia for troubled youth that people think it is. In your book, The Franklin Scandal, several references were made by witnesses and victims regarding death threats made by the FBI. How did the FBI handle its investigation into Franklin and the victims? The FBI was brought in to cover this up, and... um, they did everything they could to intimidate the victims and actually some perpetrators, at least one of the major perpetrators, a multimillionaire in Omaha, uh, was thinking about turning state's evidence and the FBI threatened to kill him if he did. So the FBI was the primary entity for covering it up and uh, between, between the FBI between the FBI's thuggery and the judiciary's uh, corruption, they were able to cover this network up, King's Pedophile Network. You co-wrote a book, Confessions of a D.C. Madam, The Politics of Sex, Lies, and Blackmail, with Henry Vinson. Who is Henry Vinson, and how did you come to know him? Well, Henry uh, ran an escort service in Washington, D.C. He was a he was from West Virginia, uh, rural West Virginia, and he came from a very religious household, and, and he was gay, and he had to repress all the vestiges of his uh, sexuality. And he ultimately went through uh, mortuary science, graduated from a mortuary science school, and he went to Washington, D.C. to be a mortician, and in in just kind of a weird set of circumstances, uh, Henry ended up with an escort service. <laughs> so, I mean, it's very strange. Um, and 
I met him investigating the Franklin scandal because, as I said earlier, there was two pimps in the pedophile network. There was Lawrence E. King and then there was Craig Spence. And Craig Spence, as I said earlier, lived in Washington, D.C. And his home, it was a CIA asset and his home was bugged for audiovisual blackmail. And in addition to King pandering, uh, King and Spence pandering children, they also pandered uh, adult males and females to the people that attended the parties in the house. I mean, they, they, would, they would compromise you any way they could. And Henry ended up, he ran this gay escort service and Craig Spence spent thousands of dollars. I think it was up to $25,000 a month on escorts uh, for his party so he could compromise people. I'm speaking with author and investigative journalist Nick Bryant. Today's show, From Franklin to Epstein, the cover-up continues. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And what is Craig Spence's background? Who was he? We don't really know a lot about Craig Spence. He was um, he was a pathological liar. So uh, he said that he was descended from the Boston Blue Bloods, but that's not truthful. We do know that he probably came from uh, upstate New York. And then he went to uh, college in Boston, Boston College. And then uh, he studied uh, journalism. And he ultimately ended up as a reporter in New York City. And then he was, uh, and then he became an ABC reporter stationed in, uh, in Vietnam. This is when we were fighting the Vietnam War. And ultimately, he reincarnated himself in Washington, D.C. with this beautiful house. And I think when Spence was in Southeast Asia, he was probably molesting little boys. He, he was a pedophile, too. And I think that he got turned there. This is just my own extrapolation. But I'm very familiar with the story. But I think somehow he got turned because his fortunes changed as soon as he got that house and he started blackmailing people. So I think that he probably was recruited for these nefarious activities that he was in and uh, in Vietnam. Well, wasn't Craig Spence the head of the notorious uh, White House call boys network? I mean, this this ended up in the mainstream news that there were midnight visits to the White House when George H.W. Bush was president of this uh, a gay escort service, right? Yes. Uh, Spence wasn't the head of that. Those prostitutes came from Henry Vincent, but, but Spence took them on midnight tours of the White House. Well, that's what I mean. He, Craig Spence had contacts at the highest levels of the government. Yes, he did. He did. Were politicians lured into compromising situations in order to blackmail and control them? Oh, absolutely. That was, that's what they were all about. That's what Craig Spence was all about, was compromising the rich and the powerful. And if you got involved with Craig Spence and you went to one of those parties and you did something illegal, you were videotaped. And... At that point, it was a, a Damoclean sword that was held over your head 
if if you didn't vote the way you, you were told to vote on certain issues, um, then you would be outed for whatever illegal activity you'd done that night if you'd visited Spence house, house. So yes, Craig Spence had a tremendous amount of power and, and, and that came through uh, blackmailing people. Well, now, Craig Spence and Larry King of Omaha, Nebraska, they were partners in Washington, D.C., right? Yes, they were partners in this pedophilic uh, network, sure. Well, could you describe the meeting that Henry Vinson, who ran the gay escort service, the meeting that he had at Craig Spence's house with Larry King? King and Spence and Henry Vinson were sitting in Spence's living room. And, and Spence had seismic narcissism. I mean, he didn't really care about anybody but his own, his own pleasures. Um, but he actually seemed sincere. He, he started asking Henry Vinson, um, you know, how he grew up, where he grew up, uh, asked him about funeral business, and asked him, all kinds of questions about himself and, and, and also about his escort business. And Henry thought like he was witnessing the parting of the Red Sea because every time he'd interacted with Spence, it had just been Spence's narcissism and what, and what Spence wanted. So at a certain point, Spence got up and he signaled to Henry to follow him. And then he went into a closet and then there was a secret panel in the closet, behind the closet. And then they went into a room, a clandestine room that, that was filled with monitors. And actually, one of Epstein's victims talks about this exact same setup. And they went into this room that was filled with monitors. And Spence hit some buttons. And, uh, and then there was Henry talking about his escort service. And Spence basically said, I blackmail people and consider yourself blackmailed. Vanity Fair published an interview with you in July of 2019. In that article, you said, quote, I wrote a book called The Franklin Scandal about a child trafficking network that was covered up under the George H.W. Bush administration. At the time, William Barr was Bush's attorney general, and he helped facilitate the cover-up, end quote. William Barr is now President Trump's attorney general. Are there similarities today between the Franklin scandal and the Jeffrey Epstein scandal? Yes, unfortunately, William Barr is covering up the Epstein network right now. Um, with the Epstein network, we know who the procurers are, a number of the procurers. We know six of them, at least, Ghislaine Maxwell being one of them, because the New York Times wrote an article that outed six of them as as procurers and and law enforcement hasn't touched them um it's six months after epstein's death and law enforcement hasn't done anything now and and Barr, this is going to be if if Barr gets away with this this will be his second known atrocity against american children with this uh if this was like a real investigation uh, the Justice Department would arrest the procurers and then and then indict them on multiple counts of child trafficking, which carry pretty heavy sentences. And the procurers would be looking at two or three hundred years, and then they would roll over on the perps. And 
that's if there was real justice happening, that's how it would be going down, but it's not. You got a hold of Jeffrey Epstein's Black Book. When was that? In 2012? How were you able to obtain his Black Book? Yes, I got Jeffrey Epstein's Black Book in 2012. I can't really get into my source on that. But yes, I did acquire Jeffrey Epstein's Black Book in 2012. And I pitched all the I pitched a number of New York magazines with his black book and none of them would touch it. And it's kind of unfortunate. Um, writing about these pedophile networks has uh, hurt my career because when I pitched like the Franklin scandal or I pitched the Epstein story, I mean, these are horrific stories. Um, th these these stories are about scores of children getting abused with impunity and, and, and the government covering it up. And when I would pitch these articles to magazine editors, they went through cognitive dissonance. They, they said to themselves, uh, you know, this is a horrible story with these kids getting molested with impunity and, and I should do something about this. We should, we should help Nick Bryan out. Or they could say, well, Nick Bryan's crazy and I don't really have to worry about this anymore and, and just clear their conscience. And all the editors uh, took the latter route, unfortunately, because I had the black book in 2012. I had a lot of stuff in 2012, a lot of documentation in 2012. And, and Epstein wasn't taken down till 2019. Now, if a, New York publication had gotten behind me and really helped me. And, and I approached a book publisher too, but he wasn't uh, very receptive. If they'd gotten behind me, you know, it's within the realm of reason that a number of girls could have been saved from molestation. But people in New York publishing, I don't think really, uh, they looked at Jeffrey Epstein as a circus. Um, None of them seem to be particularly interested in the victims, unfortunately. You are quoted in the Vanity Fair article saying that in addition to Epstein's Black Book, you had a lot of the police reports and some of the FBI reports. What did you discover in these reports? I had police reports, but not FBI reports. In the Franklin scandal, I had police reports and FBI reports. Um, with the police reports with Epstein, I mean, it was obvious that he was guilty. Uh, the police reports, they interviewed five underage girls. What happened, how the whole Epstein thing started, uh, how the toothpaste started coming out of the tube was a 14-year-old girl told her mother that, you know, she'd been molested by Jeffrey Epstein. And then her mother took her to the police uh, station and, and then the the girl described Epstein, described it as anatomy, described his house, and and Epstein was a billionaire. He was uh, he was he was one of the elite in Southern Florida. So the police department went about investigating him diligently but gingerly, and their investigation took about a year. And they ultimately uh, got five underage victims to come forward and talk. And then there was, I think, 17 other people interviewed that corroborated the victims. So they, the Palm Beach Police Department felt that Jeffrey Epstein should be just outright indicted on, um, I think, four counts of molestation and one count of pandering. 
that Jeffrey Epstein should have been indicted on having something to do with uh, the uh, sexual abuse of five minors. And all of a sudden, their investigation hit a brick wall. And the state of uh, Florida said that it was going to use a grand jury to investigate this. And, and generally in Florida, only uh, grand juries are only used for capital crimes. Now, I talked to your listeners early and I explained the corruption of a grand jury, how easy it is to corrupt a grand jury. And this particular grand jury found that there was no, uh, that Epstein didn't molest any underage girls and indicted him on one count of adult pandering, which I think that special prosecutor only called one of the underage girls to uh, to the stand. And I think that there was probably some pressure put on her. So it's it's truly unfortunate that, because uh, Epstein could have been stopped at that point in 2006, but because of the corruption involved, he was able to go to 2019 and, and molest kids that whole time. I'm speaking with author and investigative journalist, Nick Bryant, today's show, From Franklin to Epstein, the cover-up continues. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, didn't the U.S. attorney down in Florida, wasn't he told to lay off of Epstein that he was with intelligence? Yes, Alexander Acosta, who became our Secretary of Labor, he was the uh, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida. And when he was being interviewed for his cabinet position in the Trump administration, he was asked, according to Vicki Ward, the journalist Vicki Ward, he was asked, you know, what happened with Epstein? And he said he was told that Epstein was intelligence and above his pay grade. And this is where Epstein and the Franklin scandal uh, really converge, um, because Epstein was a blackmail artist. And... There's been a number of articles that have come out about his uh, penchant for blackmail, just as Craig Spence was a blackmail artist. And if there's pictures or film of you molesting an underage girl and you're a politician, that's it. You're done. I mean, you're owned. But what people don't understand, Epstein didn't blackmail these people by himself. I mean, these were power, a number of the people that participated in Epstein's network and also with the Franklin network. They were powerful people and they had connections to their own thugs. And one that I know of had connections, big time connections to organized crime. So if Epstein wasn't protected by a large network, then these power brokers who Epstein blackmailed would just have Epstein taken care of. But those power brokers must have known that Epstein was backed by uh, quote unquote intelligence or some dark network that would seek retribution if something happened to Epstein. So that's where the Franklin scandal and Epstein come together is with the blackmail. Because you cannot blackmail rich and powerful men without having a, a powerful entity behind you. Well, of course, so that you're saying it wasn't just Craig Spence or Larry King blackmailing the powerful, that the powerful were using them to blackmail other people. King, Spence, and Epstein were basically conduits, and uh, and they 
acted as conduits. And they were also pedophiles, too. So um, they got to molest kids to their heart's content while they set up rich and powerful people to molest the kids and be blackmailed. So it's, it's a very sick, sick. Uh, both these stories are very sick and pathological, but that's the way it is. I mean, Americans are going to have to wake up to that, that um, that there's an intelligence entity in the United States that doesn't draw the line at children and that children have been used to compromise powerful people. It's it's truly unfortunate. And it's something that people don't want to believe, but it, but it, I mean, I think Epstein definitively shows that it's a reality. Now, tell us about the names in the Black Book. You saw a lot of names in there. What names were in the Black Book that weren't victims? Um, well, there, there was a lot of uh, names in the Black Book. I mean, it, it was all of Epstein's social contacts. But Alfredo Rodriguez he was Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein's uh, house manager, and he circled names in the black book of people that he had seen in southern Florida that had possibly partaken of Jeffrey Epstein's pedophile network. And there's a bunch of names. Bill Richardson's name is circled, and actually he's been named as a perpetrator, too. Um, Bruce King, former governor of New Mexico, his name was circled. Peter Soros uh, was circled uh, Courtney Love's name was circled, which I find kind of bizarre. Ahud Barak, the former prime minister of Israel's, his name was circled. And Les Wexner, the billionaire who owns Victoria's Secret and the L brand, uh, his name was also circled. And Alan Dershowitz's name was circled. And Donald Trump's name was circled. And uh, Epstein had 21 contact numbers for Bill Clinton, so they must have, they must have remained rather close. Now, did uh, his house manager that you've just mentioned, Mr. Rodriguez, did he circle those names for you or for someone else? No, for someone else, because a number of civil suits had, uh, had been launched at Epstein, and he wanted to sell this, the Black Book, to one of the uh, attorneys that was, that was representing these kids. And um, he called up one of the attorneys, and one of the attorneys then called the FBI, and then the FBI arrested him with the black book. Now, you mentioned the name Peter Soros. Who's that? Peter Soros is related to George Soros, uh, the man who broke the Bank of England because of his short sale of $10 billion worth of pounds sterling, which made him a profit of one billion during a 1992 Black Wednesday UK currency crisis, but uh, but Peter Soros um, is right on his coattails. That no. black book was published in 2015 on Gawker's website, and if your listeners want to Google Nick Bryant and Gawker, they can look at the black book and see the names. The uh, the, the the numbers have been redacted, but if your listeners they can just Google Nick Bryant and they can take a look at the black book. G-A-W-K-E-R? Yes, yes. So if somebody Googles Nick Bryant and Gawker, then they can look at the names in the black book. Is that right? Yes, yes. 
You have said, quote, in the Franklin scandal, there were two primary pimps. One committed suicide, the other did 10 years in prison for embezzlement, and he's had a pretty comfortable life since. What two pimps were you referring to, and what happened to them? Lawrence E. King and Craig Spence. Craig Spence committed suicide, and Lawrence E. King kept his mouth shut, did 10 years, and then he was basically given a cush no-show job at a BMW dealership in Virginia. Now, wasn't Lawrence King committed to a mental institution in order to keep him from testifying? Yes, he was at a mental institution while the grand juries were going on. But um, after the grand juries were done, he was magically better. And then he and his lawyers worked out a plea deal with the judge where he did 10 years for his financial crimes and no time for all the crimes he committed against children. And Spence committed suicide. Spence and Epstein are very similar in a lot of ways. And um, I think with both Spence and Epstein, they were drawing too much heat, too much publicity. And I think that both of them had to be taken out. Now, I don't know whether or not Jeffrey Epstein killed himself, but there's a number of anomalies there. But I'm pretty sure that Craig Spence killed himself. But I believe that Craig Spence was told, either you kill yourself or we will kill you. I, I do believe that because he'd become kind of a loose cannon, too. So Epstein and, and, and Spence are very similar in that respect. Well, Craig Spence was in terrible, terrible health. I mean, he could have simply died, couldn't he? No, he. Uh, what he did is he rented a um, room at the uh, Ritz-Carlton in uh, Boston. And he was in a tuxedo and he took an overdose of uh, an antidepressant, I believe, nortriptyline. And then he wrote some things on the wall and wrote and he had a little suicide note, but yes. Now the biggest meme on the internet for many, many weeks now is Jeffrey Epstein did not commit suicide. Well, that's the thing with Jeffrey Epstein. There's so many anomalies there. Uh, the cameras were down. They took his cellmate away. Uh, one of the guards wasn't a guard, and then they were sleeping. In MCC, and ju just the other day, I, I talked to someone who was uh, on suicide watch at MCC, and, and they keep your door open, and there is someone, either a uh, an employee or an inmate, that keeps an eye on you throughout throughout the day and, and, and talks to you or makes contact with you every 15 minutes. So obviously um, these rules were circumvented for Jeffrey Epstein. So A, he could either kill himself or B, so someone could help him kill himself. Or he could have been removed. We don't really know, do yeah. we? Yeah, that's, that's also true. Two people you interviewed in Nebraska who remain anonymous, a foster care worker and a former state legislator, claimed that the Franklin activities were vast and omnipotent. I remember that when I interviewed John DeCamp, he told me that his mentor, the late former CIA head William Colby, told DeCamp that some things are, quote, just too big. Now we have the Jeffrey Epstein pedophile network scandal, and it too is being covered up. Well, that's why I've started a petition. And 
I'm trying to get names on it. Uh, hopefully you can provide a link to it. Um, what we have to do is we have to get a lot of names on this petition so we can reach a critical mass. So uh, anti-trafficking organizations will, will get involved in this because we cannot let William Barr and the Department of Justice cover this up in broad daylight. We just can't let them do that. The director of the Trauma and Disassociation Unit in the Belmont Hospital in Brisbane, Australia, says in his foreword to your book that the ability to maintain an enduring silence is an essential feature of the abuser's power. With regard to Franklin, in what ways was the ability to maintain an enduring silence accomplished? Well, uh, people were terrified. I'd spent uh, a lot of time in, in Nebraska, and I was trying to get people to talk to me, and they, they were just terrified. And uh, at one point, I commented to someone, you know, it's like I'm investigating the KGB in Soviet Russia. And then that individual said to me, and they don't even know it. So, yes, uh, there was a tremendous amount of fear. I mean, with the Franklin Network, a number of people had been murdered or died under very serious circumstances. So... And I think Gary Caradori, I mean, he was the Senate's investigator and his plane blew up in midair. I think that that is just as Alicia Owens, nine to 15 years, sent a message to the kids that might come forward. I think that Gary Caradori's very public death uh, sent another message to people that might follow up and investigate this. And my life was threatened initially when I uh, started investigating the Franklin scandal. A lot of strange stuff happened to me throughout that investigation. Who were some of the people in the Republican Party that Larry King was connected to in some way? For instance, and we've mentioned this, what about the late former head of the CIA, William Casey? Casey figures in both the Franklin scandal and the Confessions of a D.C. Madam book. Yes, uh, Casey. King threw a party when... George Herbert Walker Bush was nominated to be the Republican presidential contender in 1988. And basically it was a who's who of uh, people that were at that party. And like Alexander Haig was part of that. Um, But King King was uh, friends with Jack Kemp. King was a professed friend of of George Herbert Walker Bush. I mean, he was, King was uh, uh, plugged into the, to the uh, hierarchy of the Republican Party. And there's actually a picture of King and Reagan's daughter. Uh, they, they've got their arms around each other. So he hung out with the shakers and the movers of the Republican Party. And didn't he also uh, sing the national anthem? I mean, he was, uh, he could sing, right? Yeah, he was a very good singer. Uh, evil man, but very good singer. And he sang the, the national anthem in 1984 at the Republican convention. Could you characterize, or how would you characterize the cover-up of the Franklin scandal in particular? Did the cover-up include the police, the Douglas County Grand Jury, and the FBI? Just how big is this cover-up? The cover-up, okay, so it was covered up in Washington, D.C., and it was covered up in Omaha. The Omaha cover-up included the Omaha Police Department, Omaha is in Douglas County, the Douglas County Judiciary, um, the FBI in Omaha, and 
the Douglas County Judiciary, and also the uh, the Justice Department, U.S. Justice Department in Nebraska. So that cover-up required all these entities. I mean, that network was so big that it required all these entities to keep it covered up in Nebraska. Now, in Washington, D.C., it was covered up by the Secret Service and also by the Department of Justice. Yes, it was actually the Secret Service that went after Henry Vincent, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Nick Bryant, thank you very much. Thank you, Bonnie. I've been speaking with Nick Bryant. Today's show has been From Franklin to Epstein, The Cover-Up Continues. Nick Bryant is an author and an investigative journalist. He is the author of The Franklin Scandal, a story of power brokers, child abuse, and betrayal. He spent seven years personally investigating a coast-to-coast child trafficking network in Nebraska, Washington, D.C., and other locales. He is also co-author with Henry W. Vinson of Confessions of a D.C. Madam, The Politics of Sex, Lies, and Blackmail, about a gay escort service that covers the Washington, D.C. half of the nationwide pedophile trafficking network that was centered in Omaha, Nebraska. We will post on the Guns and Butter blog a link to Nick Bryant's petition, Stop the Cover-Up, Demand Justice for Jeffrey Epstein's Victims, at change.org. A link to a Vanity Fair interview with him from July 2019, and a link to the contents of Jeffrey Epstein's Little Black Book, posted on Gawker. All three links will be found on the Guns and Butter blog for this program. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yoramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Release. You dig me?